Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Did I say Happy New Year? Happy New Year. New Year was so beautiful this year. We, um, a lot of people in this room are on retreat. It's so powerful to cross over into the New Year in silence, uh, especially with snow. Have you heard about this phenomenon of snow? (laughs) Yeah. So every day when I've been uh, practicing, when I close my eyes, I still see the New Year's retreat, and snow and the Oriyoki bowls, and um, so many of you doing really good practice. So tonight is the last night I'm going to talk about the Yoga Sutra. And for some of you, this is a great relief. (laughs) So, uh, we had our board meeting last week. Someone at the board meeting had the courage to say, you know, the talks the past few months, if I was a beginner, I'd never come back again. (laughs) I had no idea what you were talking about. So, basically the idea was, wrap it up. (laughs) <laughs> and I was just getting into it I was just getting started so um, I'm going to wrap up the Yoga Sutra <laughs> chapter 3 someone said that's why they do, that's why they don't um, oh do you want to let me in? that's why they don't uh, nobody else teaches it <laughs> so um, uh, here's how the plan goes uh, I think uh, tonight I'll wrap up the Yoga Sutra chapter 3 um, I'm going to give a talk this Saturday at Octopus Garden, Saturday. So if anybody's interested, I'm giving a talk this Saturday at Octopus Garden. It's titled uh, something like Yoga and Activism, but I'm actually going to give a talk on money. So uh, what the Buddha taught about money. So if you have trouble with money, maybe you don't make any. Uh, maybe you are in a groove where you haven't made any for a long time and there's some really unexamined narrative there. Or maybe you make a lot of money, but it disappears somewhere. Or you make a decent wage and you're totally in debt, so you always feel poor. Uh, Or 
you make money, you're not in debt, everything's fine, and you still feel poor. Uh, or you spend like you have a lot of money, but you don't have any money. Um, or you have an iPad. So, or maybe you live with somebody, you don't have any money trouble, but your partner has so many issues around money. Um, then bring them along, because I, I won't speak about Chapter 3 of the Yoga Sutra. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's Saturday. And then on t- next week, we're going to start a new uh, study, all because of Kaz Tanahashi's new book. Uh, Kaz Tanahashi, who's the person who painted the Enso there around the corner, um, is an elderly Japanese man. He's about this tall. His beard's about this tall also. (laughs) He's just a superb person. And he's been working for almost 50 years with 35 translators translating all of Dogen's collected works. So Dogen is a 13th century Japanese maverick. And uh, he, he did something that most Japanese Zen masters never did at that time, which is he actually wrote writing wasn't cool when uh, Buddhism was going from China to Japan. But Dogen wrote, and he did a kind of radical, non-dualistic form of writing. And so, uh, Kaz's two volumes of translations just arrived in the post. So I decided we'll start working through some of them. So next week I'll start with kind of an introduction to the life of Dogen, as he had a very... uh, difficult uh, younger uh, very difficult younger years Um, and his kind of awakening experience and then we're going to study one of my favorite texts, essays of his uh, called Mountains and Rivers which is this beautiful text where he talks about how um, our lives are like the lives of mountains and rivers and it's so beautiful Um, if any of you have ever, ever looked at it um and there's probably a lot of lines there that you've heard before, like on Zen calendars or something. Um, so you can, you can get to the source. So, uh, and I think that'll take a couple months, you know, depending on what the board says. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know anybody who really gets tired of Dogen. It's just, it's, his language is so incredible. So, so that's the plan. Um, and um, I guess I better start talking about the Yoga Sutra. <laughs> so um, the lines I want to cover, uh, I'll just read them out to you because there's just two lines. Um, By mastering the flow of energy through the solar plexus, one becomes radiant. By focusing with perse- per- perfect discipline, On the way sound travels, one acquires divine hearing. And that's pretty much almost the end of the the chapter. I love these these two lines. Um, So a lot of people talk about, and I've discussed this, how this is kind of esoteric meditation practice. Um, But actually, this is what we're doing. When we set up the form, uh, what happens is when the corners of your lips 
Can anybody feel the smile in the corners of their lips when you're sitting? Um, if you take the corners of your lips and you just lift them a little, can you feel that? It's not an outward smile. <laughs> like you're at Whole Foods or something. It's just a little smile. And you can feel if you just have this little inward smile that the base of your tongue, uh-huh, it drops, the center drops, and then the tongue gets wide at the base. It almost takes the same shape as your lips. Mm-hmm. Can you feel that? And then if you actually take your chin, we were doing this in class earlier, and you just lift it a little, and you inhale, you can then feel that as the base drops on the inhale, the soft palate, so you know, so you have a hard palate, a really hard, and you can take a little mallet and do this with my, my son all the time, and I'm learning anatomy, I'm like, come here, let me just check this. Where does the soft palate start? So if you just lift the chin a little, when you inhale, you can feel that your soft palate lifts. It just floats up. It's just like someone lit really good incense and you're just about to smell it. And you can feel how it floats up. And it floats all the way up to the pituitary gland. And this is called Shambhavi Mudra. Bhava means to be. Uh, mudra is a seal or a gesture. And sham means to calm. Or to, so it's the gesture of calmness. Um, when the soft palate, and then if you bring your chin back down, then you'll notice that when the chin drops, if the soft palate stays lifted, the inner ear opens. Actually, anatomically, your, your eustachian tubes actually get wider in diameter. And then it's very easy to hear. It's like the peripheral vision of your hearing increases. And then you'll notice the same thing happens in the eyes. The eyes, as soon as you smile and the soft palate lifts, the sphenoid process releases, and then your eyes get softer. I remember once being in Boulder, Colorado at the Marpa House with Patabi Joyce. And Patabi Joyce said, if you want to get really good alignment... You should just study the deities. So imagine this is what cultures used to do before television, before iPads. They would just stare at the deities, and you try and internalize their posture. So if you look at most deities, the front edges of their armpits are lifted. Yeah? The belly is soft. The underside of the belly is firm. And their face is totally at ease. And if you're a collector of Buddha statues, then one of the things you'll do is you'll the first thing you'll look at when you see a good Buddha is their face. This is a beautiful Buddha, actually. This is a Thai Buddha. And you can tell it's a Thai Buddha because they have one of these crests in the, in the head. Originally, the Buddha's hair, but the Buddha was bald. And then they started putting jewels on the Buddha's head, which represent what happens when the roof of your mouth hollows out. 
you can feel it kind of expand in the skull. And then when Alexander the Great invaded India, um, all the sculptors changed the way the Buddhas were sculpted and instead they put knots of hair. So actually that's what all the... They, they went from jewels to knots of hair. Even though they were monks and none of them had any hair, suddenly they got all these knots. Supposedly a thousand jewels became all these knots of hair. Anyways, the Greeks wanted hair, they got hair. <laughs> so anyway, somehow it carried over to Thailand. And um, the long ears... Uh huh. The long ears represent infinite listening. Okay, and um, they also represent wisdom. So the wisdom of pure listening. So this is what Patanjali is talking about here. So when the ears open, the palate is released, the root of the palate lifted. Um, then there's a sense that the heart just starts floating, and you can feel this. Nothing esoteric. It's all physiological anatomy. And I'd say that as your meditation practice deepens, your practice becomes more and more purely physical practice. So that then you become more and more aware, not of watching the breathing. This is still stuck in duality, but actually becoming breathing. So there's no watcher outside of the breathing. And then the breath goes, and it has like edges, you know, it only goes so far. And then the breath is just like a magnet and it just collects in whatever you're ready for. So let's say you're really calm and you're like, I'm the calmest meditator ever. It all feels so good and I'm so pure, right? Then somehow the internal anatomy knows, oh, she's ready. And then the breath will just catch the corner. Oh, little sadness. You know, and it'll catch it every time you inhale and exhale, and then it'll slowly bring it in. And then next thing you know, you're in a rage. <laughs> like, no calm meditator anymore. You know? um, and, and, and this is sort of the pattern or the cycle of practice. So the tendency of the mind is always to get stuck in a pattern. So we set up this physiological um, pattern to release the mind from hooking into a pattern, you see? And then we become breathing, and then the breath will catch the sangskaras. Remember we talked about the sangskaras at the beginning of this chapter? Um, the word sangskar is where we get the word scar in English. So it's the coming together of scars, okay? So the breath will like feel some little... Um, I don't know, some little uh, movement at the end of the exhale. And the next time you exhale that movement, you feel a little agitated. The next time the exhale goes down there, oh, that's that place where, you know, I'm sad. You know? or, that's, or the breath will like get caught in the throat. It's like, oh. You know? And then you'll start to notice, oh, that's, um, that's where it always gets caught. Since I was a kid and I got a puck in the neck, you know. And then, so the breath will catch all your scars, all your injuries, emotional injuries, physiological injuries. And then the mind, which is always trying to make a game out of the whole thing, um, comes in and then tries to find a way to make a pattern out of those sensations. And then you're not one with breathing anymore. Now you have a story about what you're going through around those sensations. 
And then you have friends who love interpreting them. And then your friends will be like, oh, you feel that tightness in your neck? That's the throat chakra. And, and that's probably because you're really not speaking. And you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't express myself enough. And, and they'll be like, yeah, yeah, you know, you have to say what you feel. Say what you feel, you know? And then, and then those are the worst kind of friends as a meditator. Because then you're constantly acting on the pattern that the mind is superimposing on what you feel what you feel. So what you want to do, and this is what we talked about the whole retreat, right? Is, is you want to become one with the breath, where the breath is doing the work, and then over time, the prana, the, the energy, the feeling of breathing, uh-huh, is the sensations, that, that they're the same thing. There's not a separate self watching that. And then when, pran, when you see sensation as actual prana, then the sensation falls back into the natural world. And then the sensation is just pure God, pure weather, pure earth. It's just, it's not your sensation anymore. It's just patterns, patternings in nature, but it's not happening to you. It's just, that's the prana. And there's nothing left of you anymore. But I think sometimes we're so busy, like, I've got to just witness all this, you know. And, like, witnessing is, like, we don't want people witnessing stuff. Because, like, that's a really good first phase of practice. We all need to just kind of, like, be able to watch things. And then at some point, you have to kind of drop, drop it and actually become the breathing, you know. It's good to shift because it's really uncomfortable to hear this. This is like bad news, Dharma talk. (laughs) And then, then you start to see that the tendency in the mind to create a pattern actually makes the whole body get concrete again. Because this is what the ego is trying to do. It's trying to make you feel that your body is just a physical pattern separate from consciousness. You see? Because the ego is a structure, it seems, and a structure always needs a foundation. But actually, uh, the ego is more of a process, you see. And so we're just trying to watch how the mind is creating foundations and things, trying to build a foundation here and build a foundation here. I know what center of gravity is. I had to leave center of gravity because, like, it's way too flat. You know, I, I need a teacher. So, so I have to go to a school where there's, like, you know, a teacher and, and there's, like, a path you follow and there's techniques to get to this level of nirvana and, like, that's really what I need. And then there with, like, the other person who's, like, I can't stand center of gravity because it's so hierarchical. It's so authoritarian and I really need like democracy, man. And then they're fighting with each other. But any system has a window open in the back, right? To allow in the opposite side of that system. And this is the beautiful thing about practice. And that's why you don't practice, Dogen will teach us, to realize enlightenment. You practice because you're realized already. And so when I go and practice, I don't practice to achieve something. I practice just what I do. 
Could you imagine that? Could you imagine you just go to practice because it's what you do? Imagine you practice because you're so grateful that you got granted this life. It's so awesome. Oh my God, I got granted this. I got the grant. (laughs) I didn't expect it. Like, I didn't expect this life. And I didn't cause it. I didn't cause this body. I didn't expect these parents. Who decided this? You know? And then so you practice because you're so in awe of how incredible it is that you got this. <laughs> you know? And so you're really going to explore it so deeply. If you're practicing to get enlightened, this is like the wrong place, man. Wrong school. This is the anti-enlightenment school practice. Um, Jeez, I didn't even look at my notes. I I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Okay, so what did Patanjali say? By mastering the flow of energy through the solar plexus, one becomes radiant. <clears throat> so the, the word in Sanskrit for solar plexus is samana. So this is called the samana vayu. So this is the action from the navel, uh, basically to the, the bottom of your rib cage, to the navel. This pattern is called the solar plexus. Can everybody feel that? It goes all the way around to the back. And then the part that's radiant is from the solar plexus up, and that's called udana. And that goes from the solar plexus actually right to the middle of the throat. Don't interpret that. And when you start to feel the breath in those areas, what happens is uh, if you actually pay attention to these details of alignment, it just starts to feel like the center of the body, at some point Patanjali calls it, it's like cotton. It just starts to feel light, you see, as opposed to kind of this gripping we do with the tension. So the place to really get access to this is through the palate. So when you set up for the meditation practice, it's really important that we set up with our face like the face of the Buddha. The eyes are at ease. And then the soft palate, which Grant and I are going to teach for four weeks, in February, on Monday nights, the soft palate actually gives us access to the central axis, which is called Kachari Mudra. And this hooks us into Sushumnanadi, the great river that we call the central axis. And the central axis, of Sushumnanadi, is the middle way. It's the present moment. Right? It's not being caught. And so when the mind is actually in really good alignment, the body is in good alignment. You see? And when the body is in good alignment, then the mind is enlightened. And when the mind is in good alignment, the body is enlightened. And then they become one and the same thing. And this is radical non-dualism. As opposed to some people who are just like non-dualists. And a non-dualist is actually a dualist. Because they hate dual, 
they hate the dual. I mean, you know, they hate the other school. <laughs> so you have to go further than that. So you go non-dual. So the non-dualist is someone who like really likes a little bit of dualism. The radical non-dualist. The regular non-dualist, they're just like, get away from get away from them. They talk about Brahman. The radical non-dualist is like, you need a little bit of dualism because that's how language functions. And then you can have both, and then everything's okay. And then you can be in the central central axis. Does this make sense? Yeah. And then everything just flows. Oh, what a relief. Oh, carrying around all this heavy, heavy baggage. You could just let it flow. This is really good when times are tough. So that's why retreats are so good. Because like the food's taken care of, which is kind of, food's traumatic the first day of a retreat. Because like, are you going to get enough? Are you going to get the right kind? <laughs> and then um, there was a guy on, this, on the retreat that was so funny. He, he said on the last day of the retreat, I woke up every morning so happy. And I went to bed crying, sobbing in my bed every night. It was the most painful thing I've ever been through. Yeah. And the thing about retreat is that, you know, there's some relative peace and quiet where then you get tools that are invisible. You know, practice is very invisible. And then in your life, there are times where it gets really hard. And then you have these internal alignment principles that you can reach for that really can help you when you start going down that dead end that you know goes to that depressive place or that compulsive place or that place of endless anger or doing stupid things with your money or getting married. (laughs) Did I say that? And then this lightness extends to a feeling for other beings. Someone said recently, I, how did she say? She said, you know, when you're talking and when we're practicing, I can really feel this love for all beings. And then I open my eyes. (laughs) And have to encounter other beings. And that's really when we need our practice, isn't it? With other beings. So then Patanjali says, by focusing with perfect discipline on the way sound travels, one acquires divine hearing. Um, There's the end of the Yoga Taravali, which is a text by Shankaracharya, which is where we get that chant, you know, the Vande Gurunam chant comes from that text. I love the ending of it. I've, I've been reading two different translations of it. And one translation, the ending of that text says, uh, and then when you sit and acquire proper hearing, the birds build nests in your ears. I love this image. Birds. Um, this idea that when, when we're mindful... At first, we're noticing, oh, there's sounds. You track them, right? Oh, there's a sound. Come back to the breathing. There's a sound. Come back to the breathing. And then what happens over time 
is that when you're breathing, it feels like the breath is actually listening, that the breath is doing the work of listening. And then there's just sound, and this is really good if you practice if you live in a city, to meditate on sound. So there's sound, but in the same way when there's gazing, you're not actually making an object of what you're looking at. There's sound, and then the background of sound is breathing. The background of that is also the natural world. Does that make sense? No. I'll try it again. So how is it possible to hear sound without turning sounds into an object? You don't decide about the sound. There's just sound coming in, going out, before the mind turns it into a pattern, right? And then, this is considered divine hearing. And if you look in any of the uh, radical non-dual traditions, uh, most of their saints have names that are named after people or practices where they can hear sound, right? Avalokiteshvara, the deity of compassion, literally means one who hears the sounds of the world. Shankaracharya Naranusandana is the ability to perceive sound without a self. Just pure sound. It's really beautiful. Shankaracharya takes it so far that he says in his commentary on the Yoga Sutra that actually this practice of noticing sound is a devotional practice. So actually the heart is buoyant, it's open, and then whatever object arises, you practice devotion to that object. And you're totally devoted to that object. That object is the beloved. It's made up of the same stuff as your own heart. It's really beautiful. And in the heart of the sound is also you listening. Right? It's really beautiful. So that's another thing you can do is that you notice when the mind is making a vritti of what you're experiencing, turning it into, you know, a noun, and then you come back again just to releasing the palate. It's okay. So that's the technique. Um, I could say more, but before I keep going, are there any questions? Really? Sound and practice. Yeah, so um, there's a practice that we did with Norman and Molly where we were um, meditating on sound, but yeah. the, having the experience of not naming it, but having the experience of the sound in the body. Uh-huh. So I just wondered if you had anything to say about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I say keep going, though, because sounds aren't in the body, actually. Can we try a little exercise? Okay, let's try a little exercise. So, do you notice here how there's, like, sounds? People moving, pipes. Sometimes I feel like I'm inside someone's stomach when I'm in this room, and they just ate, you know, pickles. 
<laughs> okay, so just close your eyes. And if, I, if you close your eyes and I say body, you'll have an image of your body. So try and close your eyes and let's see if we can do this without kind of making categories. So there's breathing in the background, it's relaxed. When you hear a sound over the next few minutes, I want you to see if you can find the location where hearing and the sound actually meet. Where do they come together? Where does the actual sound and the hearing of the sound make contact? Okay, you could do this for a couple hours. That's <laughs> what yogis do part-time. Where, where do sounds and hearing actually meet? What happened? What did you notice? Okay, so... So it depended on the sound. So the woman, the woman got that high me. Yeah. I could, when I sensed her breathing, it was yeah. in the right side of my throat. Okay. When you're talking, it yeah. was in the chest. Okay. The whatever that sound was at the back uh-huh. was kind of in the mid back. Oh. So, I mean that sounds kind of odd. Okay. Somebody else. Carmen, did you have your hand up? Yeah, no, that's LSD residue. <laughs> yes. What I find really interesting is that I noticed I have a gaze with my ears. Like, uh-huh. 
some sounds I'm hearing and some I go looking for. Uh -huh. Like they're not in my attention until I uh -huh. pay attention. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I thought your ears are here. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Oh, I had the experience that there wasn't an ear. Uh-huh. There was the sound and there was awareness. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? So, like, for Carmen to say, it was my shoulder... If we kept going with that, we'd say, well, what do you mean your shoulder? If I was a good teacher, I would hit you. I would have a little cane here. I'd be like, no. Right? No. There's a really good koan like this. Uh, the teacher says to the student, what do you notice? And the student is like a little smart and is like, Nothing. And the teacher says, do you hear the sound outside? And the student says, yes. That's the sound of the rain outside the gate. It's raining. So then the teacher shakes his head and says, no. Young people these days are always chasing after things. And usually it would end there, right? And the student would really, but this student really is like, and the student says, okay, teacher, how would you say it? I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> and, and, and the teacher says, um, I almost don't lose myself. I, I love this line. I almost don't lose myself. So how do you have this experience of opening to sound where there's no self? just sound, and also not getting stuck there. So opening to sound is pure awareness, right? The sound isn't actually happening in a body. Your mind is saying, oh, it's in the body. But if you go further, sound is just happening where thoughts happen, where images happen, which is in awareness. And then linguistically we and spatially, we decide where that is. That's why in the Heart Sutra they say no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. No. Get not those categories. If you if you're open to sound, it doesn't happen in your ear. Right? And then at the same time, uh, don't lose yourself. Right? It's all one. And then you walk in front of the fire truck. You know? I'm just, it's all vibration. Man. It's all vibration. So the, and that would be like bad non-dualism, right? So that's why you need neo-non-dualism. Because you have to be careful of that fire truck school. They're the oneness with fire truck school. There's a lot of cults like this. So actually, you know what? Let's just take it even further. So then I would say, because if you take this line further, then you would say that actually meditation is the, is the most fundamental and deepest kind of thinking that you can do. Because it's wholly another category of thinking. Right? Or as Dogen says, thinking, not thinking. Right? 
is, is, is a totally different way of thinking. And then if you say, oh, well, it's thinking with your body. No, also not that. So this and this, so this is the heart of our practice, not getting stuck. And then not getting stuck in your theory of not getting stuck. Because <laughs> this is what we all, I do this all the time. I have these insights where it's like, oh, that's what this is about. Does anybody get like that? Especially about practice. Like you have a really deep moment in practice and it's like, that's what this whole thing is about. And as soon as you've done that, you know, right? That it, it like that whole thing that's so big just got totally hijacked by the ego, and you didn't even see it. And then you go to all your friends, and you're like, <laughs> it's it's you know, like you tell them what it is, right? And then they have a deeper practice because they're just like. <laughs> You say so, you know, and they don't know anything, and so they have a much deeper practice because their palate is totally released. I love sake. If you ever drink sake, you, you put your nose right inside it, and when you do that, you get that feeling in the soft palate. Oh, so. Andrea. <clears throat> and so if <coughs> can I see the, the watch so I can Yeah. Where'd you, where'd I'm you timing found? your question. We're we're just bound to get stuck in not getting stuck. And that's the practice. Yeah. Just did it. So life is all about getting stuck and not getting stuck. <laughs> and then you see like it's it's relentless yeah? it's like mm-hmm. oh that's what this is about because then you get stuck in the ways of getting not stuck in, so. yeah. don't you all know this like in your life has anyone here ever been in a relationship <laughs> you heard, have you heard about these things amazing so when you're in a relationship always there's some crisis right and then, hopefully together, but not always, sometimes just you, because you're so deep in your practice, <laughs> you realize what's going on, and you have this like deep insight, which you feel is a solution to whatever the problem is. And then, that pattern that you've discovered that is the solution is actually the seed for the next phase of suffering. Because you contract around it, right? And then it's like, now we're going to do it this way, right? And then that becomes the next pattern of dukkha, the next pattern of suffering, right? And so part of this practice of becoming the breath is actually the solution, really the solution, like the real solution, the real kind of thinking. Just like at the end of the Heart Sutra, this is the truth, not a lie. And the truth is, is that where you think there are two structures coming together, 
there aren't really two structures that are coming together that you've solved. That's just what your mind is patterning as two structures so you can feel good about a solution. But actually not knowing as your practice, you see, is actually uh, a deeper ground than just trying to create esoteric or existential solutions or psychological solutions to things. And I'm all about solutions. Like, I think if you have an eating disorder or you have too much debt or you have um, uh, poor communication skills, you should, get a, you should have solutions. Like, it's really good to have solutions. And to recognize that, like, deeper than that, um, how you really enter your life is much, much deeper than solutions. Mm-hmm. And I think as a student, all of us, this takes the most courage, the most courage, the most honesty, is to stop living at that level of solutions to crises and actually to be fully in your life. And that's why a lot of people, when they start practicing, they start saying, I actually don't feel better. (laughs) I thought I was supposed to do this practice and feel better. And then the worst is when they only realize that after like four or five years. And then they're like, I'm done. This really like didn't give me what I expected. And that's what I was saying about a system. The thing about systems is that the mind will always try and decide about it. It's too hierarchical, it's too flat, it's too this, it's too that. And also when you stay in the system, it's a pressure cooker. And it will show you your your life. There's a really good story. I I, I was reading over the holidays Ajahn Chah, because I was in Thailand, and he's such a good teacher. And everyone there reveres him so much. And... um, there was this really funny story about Ajahn Chah and Jack Cornfield, where Jack Cornfield was young. He had studied some psychology in the United States, went to Thailand uh, to go study with this teacher. And then, you know, Americans are quite confrontational. And in the 70s, psychologically especially so, right? So he started noticing things about Ajahn Chah, like he chewed betel nut, which is basically like going and having a smoke um, in the forest. Away, you know. So he had this whole list of all the things Ajahn Chah did. <laughs> and so he said to him one day after the Dharma talk, could I talk to you about some of these things I'm noticing about you? Because <laughs> it's like equal, right? You know, non-hierarchical. So Ajahn Chah says, okay. And then Jack pulled out the list you know, and read all the things. You know, you teach this, but you do that. You teach this, but you do that. You teach this, but you do that. And Ajahn Chah looked at him and said, I'm glad you're not looking for the Buddha outside of yourself. Just a little bit of sarcasm. I'm I'm glad you're not looking for the Buddha. How often do we inflate people and deflate people? Just so we can decide what this is for us. And how often do we do that to avoid feeling something so painful? Right? Oh, I've been disappointed. But we don't say, oh, like, we don't really feel disappointment. We go, you disappointed me because you were supposed to be a little more like this. 
And the nice thing about a system is that, like, if there's enough love and trust, hopefully, like, after 20 years or 30 years, then uh, you can see how it's working. But I think we all should just, like, relax a little bit about what we think of our practice. You know, when we were on the retreat on New Year's, one of the things I was thinking about a lot, and I know I spoke about this just a little bit, but it really was so deep for me. We did this, we did these practices on forgiveness. And one of the things I kept thinking about is that in Judaism and in Christianity, forgiveness only happens from God. It doesn't happen from this side. Like, you get forgiven by God. You don't forgive yourself. That's kind of like this new thing we do. Maybe Jack Cornfield started it. You, you don't forgive yourself. You're forgiven because God forgives you. And then I had this realization that actually this is exactly what's happening in meditation practice. That we're going to a place in meditation deeper than ourselves. Yeah? And that's how forgiveness happens. Right? Is that it happens from the other side. It happens from the transpersonal, from something bigger than our, ourselves. And when you're bigger than yourself, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, when you're free of yourself, then uh, you can live in that place where you don't need solutions to everything. Because you're living your life. And when you're fully in your life, you can't see it. You can't see, see it. Because you see so clearly, but it's not your life. And maybe that's how we should practice. I'm going to ask you, because it would be a real relief for me as a teacher, if, and as a student, is like if everybody would just like stop analyzing their practice and just actually practice for 10 years. Just, just give over to it. Not, not for any reason other than to just really be in your life. As opposed to deciding, oh, I think it's time now I do a retreat with this teacher and this teacher. and Like as if it's like this material thing you have to get through. And, and just give over to the practice. And, and don't practice for any other reason that you're so grateful that you got the grant. Thank you, Buddha. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Dad. Yeah. Thank you so much. I get to practice now. Yeah. And then there's like a better motivation, I think, than like, this is going to improve me. This is going to solve my problems. I've tried that so many times. I wish I could just say sometimes to people, it's like, it's not going to help you. It's really not going to help you, and there's no other alternative. <laughs> and, like, and that is devotion, right? Because the deepest kind of devotion you can have, and I have to learn this over and over again, is you become so devoted to the form until you can drop the form. And the heart's just wide open. And then you just drop the form that you're devoted to. It wasn't about the form. And then you feel deeper love for that form. Right? 
it's like a person. It's like, I love this person so much. And then you have to go through this phase where your love has to be so big, you can actually just completely let go of that person. Totally let go of meditation. Just completely be able to let go of it. And then you get this deeper feeling for practice. 2012, January, I feel more love for this practice than ever, ever in my life. And I've been doing this too long already. And I'm already a young person still. And then, like, sometimes it's amazing to me. It just gets better and better and better. And lighter and lighter and, like, and, and... and all that's not true, also. <laughs> right? As soon as I say it's true, it's like, oh yeah, good. Well, then I can get like that January. When did he start? <laughs> okay. Any other last comments or questions? And then we'll, we'll chant to finish. Lana and then Grant. The part about uh, relaxing in the practice. Don't you, in some way, feel a sense of urgency at the same time to just like help as many people as possible to wake up? Because <laughs> the state of this world is just—it's—it's it's so insane sometimes that we really don't know. Like yeah. Really, each day is such a gift. We really yeah. don't know how much time we have. Yeah. So that's like a positive thing because mm-hmm. you can, you, if you can really like hold on to that, you can really if you can really feel that, you can you can really like love each moment that you're given. Yeah. But at the same time, there's like, I'm I'm ranting now. I'm gonna talk. I'm yeah. No. No. And how do you hold both those things? How do you hold both those things? This happened to me just a, a little while ago. The the, the day after the St James Park was. Um, dismantled it was just so devastating to me you know I, I, I loved what was happening in that movement in Toronto and so the day after I was really like I didn't know how I would get hope again you know because I was really attached to it actually that park staying there you know in that form and then Somebody sent me this link of this huge march, some of you may have seen, called Operation Bat Signal, where people walked across the Brooklyn Bridge. Did any, has anyone seen this? Okay. So there's this amazing thing that happened in New York the next day. So it was a, this is also a little while after Zuccotti Park got um, dismantled. So then thousands of people are marching across the Brooklyn Bridge. And, and I won't give it away. There was this amazing art event that happened but so you see this footage of thousands of people, and then the camera zooms in, and right at the front of the line is my teacher, Enkyo Roshi, in her robes, in her raksu, seventy years old, marching at the front of the line, with thousands of people, you know, and it, and then suddenly it was like, oh, this hope again, you know, and then I found out that. All those people at the front of the line with her, they were all marching because they were so devastated because they didn't have any hope. And then it was like, oh, to see that death of that hope coming alive. And, and it just depends on how the mind's patterning it. 
Because at some deeper level, it's not the end or the beginning or hope or despair or the beginning of movement or the end of the movement. It's actually just what's being configured there. That's the art of that moment. Right? And the mind wants to hold on. That's why uh, Andrea is here, so I was thinking about dance. That's why dancers have like the worst art form and the best art form. Because someone paints a painting and you've got a painting. Mm -hmm. But you do a dance and like that's it. Well, and then you get stuck on what happened. Well, then you you have a dance that you have to repeat. Yeah, and you can't. And then you get stuck on the previous night, which was really good. And then you, you try to reach the process the end yeah. rather than a circum- like yeah. reach for the circumstances yeah. that brought that good performance exactly. and now it's like oh well then now they have dance on film yeah. <laughs> Grant it's last right. word I mean, something that Joey Mitchell said in a concert once it's like, nobody ever said to Van Gogh paint a starry night again Insight arises because yeah. I think they come from the same place, that place that's bigger than us. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the tendency to think about it as a solution or turn it into a system and try and apply it in all circumstances yeah. that, that gives rise to the need to negate it or to push yeah. it away, I think makes in the end just as much of a system of negation of, um, of the potential of having insight and saying, Oh, but it's not real, or it's not going to help. But yeah. that doesn't mean that it isn't um, that it isn't happening in that yeah. moment, and that it isn't something yeah. to, to fully be with. Yeah. Um, and so, I almost don't lose myself. Yeah. yeah. So is it possible to have an insight and be with it in that moment without yeah. turning it into a solution or a system? Yeah. Is it? Well, don't answer I, that. <laughs> 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 Language makes things so difficult. Uh-huh. Really? No, no, no. So then we held this up. Oh, it's language. It's like, oh, it's my mother. <laughs> it's language. Yeah, and there's language. And this is also uh, God. Good luck, Grant. (laughs) Okay. Let's finish chanting. Do you want to chant? We always chant in English. Do you want to chant in, in Sanskrit tonight? Instead of English? Let's try it. We'll call and respond. First, we'll start with Om. Ah.